This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, y'all. Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright, and today's guest is David Nolan. Welcome to the show. Hello, thank you very much. My pleasure, my pleasure. Um, now, you, I, I, I'm taking off one, one of the cover of one of your books, The King of Mank Noir, and until I'd heard you talking on the Old Brother podcast, uh, I wasn't even aware there was a thing called Mank Noir. Well, that's the beautiful thing, you see, because if you make up a genre you automatically become the king of it. <laughs> so uh, I can recommend that to all your listeners. Make up something like, you know, handbag noir or something like that, or uh, uh, anything you fancy. And then because you've made it up, you automatically become the king of it. It's the rules. I don't make the rules. I just stick to them. Indeed. Indeed. Well, look, the, the, that is a trilogy of books. It's Black Moss from 2018, The Mermaid's Pool from 2020, and last year, The Ballad of Hanging Lees, which the first of the books introduces us to Danny Johnson and flits between the Strange Ways riots of 1990 and 2016. And one of the characters within that story is D.I. John Smith Smithdown, who becomes the star of your second book, Mermaid's Pool. And then for your third one, you return us to Danny Johnson and vigilantes who are trapping sexual predators. Um, it's, I mean... Being from Manchester, as we've, <laughs> as I am with my Liverpool influence, but generally speaking, I grew up in North Manchester and, and Prestwich, those kind of areas. And my mother's side of family are like Middleton Way. So reading the back, you know, reading, going, to go, going towards the border between Lancashire and, uh, and Yorkshire in your stories, it, 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 they, I love that localised ideas. And, I, and, and because I can picture them as well, it's a rare thing, certainly with noir fiction. For me to feel like I know where you're walking, I know where you're going. What was what was what for you was? I mean, it sounds like a daft question for someone who's from that area, but what made you focus so much on sort of that like kind of localized detail? Um, it's always kind of bugged me with with Manchester, and by Manchester, I'm, I'm meaning Greater Manchester. Yeah, is that you tend to get two two Manchester's? You get the Salford shameless kind of greater manchester yeah and then you get the uh city center gay village uh didsbury kind of manchester and you don't see the other other aspects of manchester represented 
Mm. You just don't see it ever. So that really bugged me. So, because um, it's a, you know, Greater Manchester is an incredibly diverse place and you just never see it represented. It's always like that kind of, that horrible, shameless kind of caricature mm. or it's this kind of people swanning around Disbury and wine bars kind of thing. And there's, there's, there's so much more to it than that. So um, the great thing about somewhere like Oldham is that it's got, it's, it's, it's very diverse and it's got the hills right on the doorstep. Mm. Uh, and it's the hills for me. Always Again, it bugs me. This will be a, a recurring theme, actually, things that annoy me. But it annoys me when people go, oh, have you seen that? Oh, have you seen that Scandinavian noir on BBC4? Oh, it's so bleak. <laughs> oh, it's so foreboding. Let me take you up on the hills above Oldham. And there, there, I'll show you a bleak landscape. Not a tree, as far as you can see. Mm. Um, if you get lost up on those hills, yeah, you know, if you broke a leg up there, you'd be in the weird position of you'd probably die, but you can see the Arndale Centre in the centre of Manchester. <laughs> <laughs> so it's this incredibly bleak, um, foreboding landscape um, in spades, which is brilliant. And also, it's got loads of reservoirs. And one of my obsessions one of my many obsessions, is reservoirs. I love reservoirs, which is why all three books are named after bodies of water. Yeah. Um, because uh, I love them and, and the bleaker. I don't like these reservoirs with like ice cream vans and benches near them. I like reservoirs that are grey slabs of water in the middle of nowhere. So where their function is, is, that, is that's all they are. They're not really for sightseeing. Well, that's what. That's the beautiful thing is that the company who runs the reservoirs it has the most utilitarian name in the world, which is United Utilities, <laughs> and that's what they are for. They are for the storage of water, and obviously for dumping dead bodies next to. You know, that, that's it. That's they. They have no other function. Now, part of your background before, I mean, maybe as 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 alongside your writing, you were you worked in TV. Um, you produced TV. You produced TV documentaries. Um, and for you to then have a character who is a radio journalist during, I guess, what would have been a busy news time, the Strange Ways riots and everything else going on in, in Black Moss, then how much, how much of that was you sort of using your, was it, did you have to, were you relying on your memories of it or was it, was that, I think, did that end up being a lot of research for you? Um, I, I love doing research, but the one thing that I didn't have to research was the Strange Ways riot. Okay. Um, before I worked in television, I worked in radio, mm. and I was a reporter for a, a station that was called Piccadilly Radio. I remember it which well. At the time, was was like the biggest station outside of London. It was a mm. big deal to work at Piccadilly, and I was a reporter, so I was that reporter standing outside Strangeways for three and a half weeks during the riot. Mm, so I didn't have to do any research for that at all. So that whole carnival vibe in the middle of the night at Strange Ways with people selling T-shirts and selling weed and selling beer and all the mad stuff that would happen around the jail at three o'clock in the morning. You know, I was there. So zero research required. For I, pa I passed it every day. That was my um, Qantas surveying years, as I call it. I was like a trainee Qantas surveyor from the age of 16 to 19. Rock and roll. Exactly, exactly. But we used to come in from Radcliffe. You come down the, the old road and past strange ways every day before we'd park up in the railway arches on the Salford side of the river and then walk up into Deansgate. So yeah, every day we saw it. So the, the, it was, uh, 
it, and it was weird to then have all those memories sort of rekindled because I hadn't thought of the consequence of this being the hottest ticket in town and therefore all of the news and crime didn't matter almost. I'd never even give that a thought. And I thought it was a yeah, wonderful and, aspect to your book. And I, and I pinched it because somebody once told me that um, there was one murder during 9-11. Someone saw the planes going into the buildings and thought, I know what, I'll kill somebody and I'll get away with it. No. And it's never been solved. So when I was kind of, all this was formulating in my mind, I thought, well, I don't know a great deal about 9-11. I'm certainly no expert. Um, but what what could be the Mancunian equivalent of something that was really big yeah. that would distract everybody? Um, and that was Strange Ways Right. I don't remember doing another story for the three and a half weeks of the riot. And in fact, pretty much afterwards for a week or two as well. So you think, well, what was all this other stuff going on that we didn't cover? Mm. Because basically our listening figures went through the roof. The management were all delighted and rubbing their hands because in commercial radio, that means more money. Yeah, yeah, you can yeah. charge more for the adverts. And therefore, all this other stuff that probably was incredibly important effectively got ignored because everybody was looking in another direction. And I thought, well, actually, that, that misdirection is a great way of uh, a great plot device, I suppose. For well, why why would some nobody care about a kid being killed? Well, it's because all the police and all the journalists were all looking for a promotion, me included, during the Strange Ways riot. It's a trilogy now in 2023, and obviously that put, the third one was published in 2022. Was it always a trilogy, or has this as this evolved as you've have you've written each book? Right. It was, I didn't even think I'd finished the first book. Oh, blimey. I didn't even, I, I didn't think I would get across it. Right. I'll tell you how it happened. I hope, I hope this doesn't sort of put a handbrake on your show, but, but you know, this is how it happened. Uh, I was a music writer. I'd written lots and lots of music books hmm. and, and I was very good at it. And, uh, and you can look them all up if you like, loads of them, uh, a very professional music writer. And then, um, a teacher from my old school was arrested and charged with uh, sex offences against boys at the school going back across 20 years from the 70s into the early 90s. Mm. And those boys included me. Oh, wow. And I gave evidence and was waiting for my court date and all the rest of it. And I thought, you know what? I could do more here. So I jacked in all my work and sat and watched the trial. Uh, and I... Uh, wrote a book about it. I made a documentary for Radio 4 about it. And I made a documentary for ITV about it. And I was inundated, inundated by people telling me their stories. I still get it now. Years later, I still get about three a month of, of boys, lads from the 70s and 80s telling me their stories. <clears throat> it's my part-time job. Uh, and then I was going to write a big book about historic abuse in this country in the 2010s when this, this country went mad for historic abuse. And I got a commission to write a book, a big book, started doing interviews. And then the publishers came back and said, you know that book you're writing about historic abuse and government and power and celebrity and money and all this? We don't want you to write it. In fact, here's some money to bugger off. Wow. And I was quite upset. It's called, in publishing uh, circles, it's called a kill payment. Yeah. I was given a kill payment to basically go go away. Yeah. And I was so angry and so annoyed and so upset because it just felt like the 70s all over again trying to trying to shut us up. Yeah. 
trying to silence us, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, I was so frustrated that I just started, um, this is not going to translate well on a podcast. I started doing this, bang, 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 with my fingers on a, on a keyboard Yeah, because uh, I was so angry. And I didn't tell anybody what I was doing. I didn't even tell my wife what I was doing. And eventually I showed, showed it to her what I was <clears> doing. And she said, why are you writing a crime fiction book? I said, I don't know. Is that what it is? I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just going bang, 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 and something is coming out. And word for word, what I'd written was the first chapter of Black Moss. Word for word. Amazing. And I just thought, right, well, I'll carry on because it seems to be helping me process my anger. And I carried on and I gave up a couple of times and um, um, and I kept going. And um, I'll tell you who kept me going, actually, is uh, David Keenan. David Keenan is the author of uh, This Is Memorial Device. And uh, he told me that uh, he, he'd done his job in an off-license and for uh, several years, for 10 years, he went home every night and wrote uh, and never showed anybody. And I thought, well, if he can keep going for 10 years, I can keep going as well. Yeah. So I kept going. I finished it. And then that was I was happy with that. And then I typed the words crime fiction publisher into the internet. And I sent it off to the first name that came up. I sent it to them. And they said, we'd like to publish your book. There you go. That's amazing. I mean, it's a... It- Obviously, very tra- where, where where the roots are is tragic, but that, that idea of where you, from a from a writing a book point of view, that's amazing. But what I realised was that all the things that I wanted, I was going to write about in the factual book, um, which was going to be called "Abuse of Power," great title. I'd, I'd actually written about them, but I'd, they, they're all in there in Black Moss. Everything that I was going to talk about, particularly the way that missing children are treated. Depending on their social status in this country, yeah, you know how many, how many, how many missing children can you name apart from Madeleine McCann? Yeah, that's a disgrace, isn't it? A disgrace. Yeah, I mean, because I mean, I think I mean, I mean, in between when we made contact and now we're talking, now I tweeted at you, didn't I, that uh, the story of the two hundred migrant refugees who've gone missing and they don't know where they are and they're all children. They're like, they don't care. Absolutely, nobody cares. <clears throat> the lower you are on the scale, the less chance you have a being found if you're missing. Mm. Nobody cares. So all of that stuff that I was going to write about, I, I did write about it. It's all in Black Moss, but it's all, uh, you know, kind of coated in this guise of crime fiction. I mean, that was a bit that, st- I remember when, this is the bit that stood out when you were talking to the to the, the Hanley brothers is that that idea that fic- you can write about stuff in fiction that, as you as you said with your kill fee, that you're not allowed to write yeah. about as a, as a piece of fact. Yeah, lawyers can't touch you. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> and um, it is remarkably close. And I think you noted um, there's a character in the book who's a, an MP, a flamboyant MP, yeah, yeah. called Peter Jeffries. And um, the the older heads will realise that um, that is Jeffrey Dickens, um, the uh, former MP for Saddleworth. It's, it's him. Mm. I've just changed his name around a little bit. And I've done that a lot. Everybody in the book is a a real person. Uh, I'm not clever enough to make stuff up, so I don't bother. Uh, so every, everything in the book has happened in one form or another, and every person in the book is based on a real person. 
So in that sense, if that's where the, en- where the energy and the drive came for the first one, where, at what stage did you think, hold on a minute, this is, I've got, I've got these characters now that, that I've, re- I've breathed life into. There's, there's more stories to tell. Um, I thought, well, I thought, well, it, it was less that. It was more, was that a fluke? Because I have a, I've had extraordinary luck through my career. I really have. I mean, I am the jammiest person you'll ever come across, really. And and I thought, was that a fluke? Was I, that was, it, so how, I, I couldn't even remember, to be honest with you, I can't even remember writing it because it all kind of spat out, you mm. know, in a fury. So I thought, well, how did I do it? if I could do it again, just to see if it was a fluke or not. That's why I wrote it. I didn't write it for any other reason other than I wanted to see if it was a fluke or not and whether I could do it again. Um, I mean, so, just kind of pause there for a second. I mean, yeah. that is quite amazing for, you know, for the body of work you've got behind you, you know, books about George Michael, books about the Sex Pistols and, you know, TV programs, documentaries. The idea that even with that long tail behind you, having done this piece of work, you the black, the foot, the... The, the, the start of something new was still kind of a, a foreboding, still was like, can I do this? That's that's quite amazing. Well, I just, that's how I felt. I mean, mm. to be honest with you, I've always felt like that. Every single thing I've ever done, mm. and I've made hundreds of documentaries. <clears throat> yeah. Um, you know, it's the music ones that people tend to know about. Yeah, yeah. Loads yeah. of other stuff as well. And every time I always kind of think, the, like the night before I start something, I kind of think, and even did it with Black Moss. I remember lying in bed the night before thinking, I'll ring up the publisher and I'll say, right, it's been a mistake. Just pulp them, right? Just get rid of them. And I'll pay, I'll pay, you know, for the costs. And let's just, let's just forget about it. I can literally remember lying in bed the night before thinking, no, this is, let's just, let's just ask them to say, thank you very much for the opportunity, but let's just sack it off. And you always, and I think that's a good thing. Anybody who kind of like, you know, cuts about thinking they're, thinking they're the bollocks. I'm very, very suspicious of people like that. Yeah, no, I, me- I remember watching a uh, BAFTA lecture with Scott Frank, you know, who's won Oscars and all kinds, and he talked about the fear of the blinking cursor at the start of a new project. Always, he said, "It's like I've never written before." Yeah, and and that's good. I think that's a good thing. And you're not going into kind of you know muscle memory uh, and going through the motions. So the second time around, I thought, right, okay, well, how did I do it? How did I write a book? How did I write a novel? And I thought, right, I did it because I was angry. I was angry about something, and mm. that's what made spurred me on so i literally sat down and i made a list of things that were i was angry about so i was angry that tommy robinson was standing to represent me in stockport um, the former leader of the english defense league Mm. i was angry about the murder of joe cox assassinated on the streets of britain you know Mm. shot in the head because by a far-right nutcase Uh, i was angry about the, the moors uh, around Manchester were all on fire. <laughs> I was really angry about yeah, it. Right, yeah. I was furious about it. Yeah. And I was even angry. Uh, my, my wife had breast cancer. And I was really, really angry about that. I was furious about it. I remember sitting in the Christie Hospital in Manchester and, and sitting in the, the reception. I hated sitting in the reception and thinking, I'll go and see one of the members of staff and I'll ask them, can can they take it out of her and give it to me? That's how angry I was. Mm. In fact, that that very thought, that very line, one of the characters in, in Mermaid's Pool says it. Can, will they take it out of her and give it to me? 
because that's how angry I was about it. So that's what I did. So Mermaid's Pool is about, it's not the lead character. The lead character is a family. It's mum, who's a policeman. Mm. Sorry, it's his dad, who's a policeman. His yeah. mum, who has cancer. That's right. It's the yeah. daughter, who has, uh, who's a journalism uh, student. And, um, and all of that stuff, you know, uh, I did a book talk recently. I love doing book talks. I do a lot of book talks. And um, I was in um, Ramsbottom, I think, and a guy came up to me and said, uh, all that cancer stuff that was in Mermaid's Pool was spot on. Absolutely spot on. Mm. And I should know I'm an oncologist. And that was like a round of applause. Oh, my goodness. That is... That is- not, not quite, not quite a mirror of it. But I, over lockdown, my mother went into hospital and I couldn't see her because I was in London. She was in Manchester, and oh, wow. she, and it was for a blood transfusion. And mm. while she was there, they decided to start chemo on her for a, for a leukemia they'd been monitoring. And that what you describe of like putting the energy into how you feel about that emotion. I ended up writing a character that was my mother, basically. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm baffled by these people who who claim to make everything up. What well, you must be a mug. Why on earth would you want to make characters up and people up and situations up? You know, just take them from real life and change the names around a bit. <laughs> you know, it's, you know that's where it is, and that spurs you on if you if you if if you're angry about. You know, a great man once said, "Anger is an energy." He did indeed, and it really is. You know, and it's it's you know, some people you know, light candles and play whale music and that helps them write and this kind of stuff. I just get angry about stuff and that helps me. Yeah, def- I mean, you, you, I definitely got the Tommy Robinson uh, reference. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's like I was thinking, oh my God, that is, is him. It was like, it took about three, three times around when the name comes up and I was like, no, he is, isn't it? That's what he's doing. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, again, based, it's about, you know, far right trying to take over the council uh, in, in Oldham by provoking racial tension. Mm. And that's exactly what happened in Oldham in the early 2000s. Yeah, yeah, So, yeah. again, and at the back of each book, there's a, cause a, a little couple of pages basically saying, look, <laughs> this is real, you know. I know it's a crime fiction book, but it's based on a real a real problem or a real situation, mm. you know. So uh, my I am unashamedly and unembarrassedly um, a table banger. That's what the books are there for. They're not because I like seeing my name on on the side of a book. Mm. They're there because I'm I'm furious about something and I want to bang a table about it. So in that sense, then, so I guess what what was the what was the anger that that, that then fueled the ballad of the hanging leaves? Because you you bring us back after after focusing our attention on Detective Inspector John Smith down, who was part of Danny Johnson's story in Black Moss. Then you return us back to Danny Johnson for for your third book. Yeah, I couldn't work out really what he would be doing in the modern age, mm. and then I, then it came, so that's why Mermaid's Pool is set like in the, in 1988. Yeah, as rave is kicking in and ecstasy is kicking in and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and also it meant that I could flesh out the characters more who were slightly to the side of the action in Black Moss, and then I, I twigged what he would be doing. Um, a friend of mine runs a, a, a operation called Alteringham Today, which is a micro news site, uh, a very specialist you know, just covers a very specific area news site. And he, my friend, is uh, David Pryor, and he's the, the videographer, the, the news editor, the lead reporter, the photographer. He does everything himself mm. on a mobile phone. And I thought, that's what Danny would be doing. He'd be doing that because he's such an idiot and he, he can't get along with people very well. That, you know, nobody would employ him. 
So he, he, he creates a job for himself. So I was able to work, you know, work that out. And then, yeah, what was I angry about? I was angry about uh, my own profession where there's no local accountability anymore and journalists are threatened with the sack unless they get above a certain amount of clicks for their stories. Mm. So what kind of stories are they going to write? Are they going to write stories about missing kids that nobody cares about? Or are they going to write clickbait about Piers Morgan? There you go. So I was really angry about that. Yeah. And I was also really uh, angry that the online grooming uh, during lockdown and after uh, had gone up 75%. That's just stuff we know about. Online grooming, massive increase. Oh, shocking. During and after uh, lockdown. One of the terrible, terrible byproducts of mm. lockdown. So I was really angry about that. So I said, right, okay, let's have online grooming. Let's have, you know, d- this debate about the, you know, you know, the state of journalism. And also let's, let's what's, the, what's the most kind of provocative thing I could do in terms of victims? Uh, okay, let's make the victims pedophiles. Hey, <laughs> that'll, that'll be good. Let's make the victims pedophiles and let's test, let's test your liberal sensibilities by doing that. So it was a, a real kind of poke in the chest kind of thing. So when you're right, when you're writing with that kind of energy, that's sort of like you say, you're bang, you're banging away on your, on your typewriter or your keyboard, as it were. What thinking of the ballad of hanging leaves, what do you remember? And, and especially where you're melding sort of your ideas of fiction with where you're taking stories from, from fact. And obviously the thing about fiction over real life is it kind of has to make sense and or be dramatic. I mean, I know it's, it's one of the problems Certainly, I, I know I fight with when I'm trying to write screenplays. Is that you know, you, real life doesn't make sense, whereas obviously stories tend to make sense in the way that we read them. So, hmm. for you, what was the storytelling challenges bringing the Ballad of Hanging Leaves to life? Well, it was it was um, one you have to write a standalone book that works on its own. Okay, and then secondly, you have to do you know a certain amount of exposition work in order to fill in the stuff from the other books without so you're not alienating anybody. And then you have to, you know, I wanted it to be a trilogy, so I wanted to, to tie it up. I wanted, you know, I didn't want anyone thinking, ooh, you know, uh, oh, what was what, what what was all that about? Apart from one thing, and I've literally never actually said this out loud, but in the third book, there is an ever so slight whiff, not even a whiff, a tiny whiff of the of the almost supernatural. There is, uh, there is a, and if you if you've not noticed it, if you've read the book, that's perfect because I wanted it to be that kind of whip up because there's almost a suggestion that Danny is being guided by the shirtless boy, this mm. this boy who's been missing, who was dumped by the side of Black Moss, and that everything he's been guided by this mm. this dead child, but it's very very low key, and I used to love those shows like. Um, Armchair theater, uh, armchair theater, and thriller, and things like that from ITV back in back in the seventies. Uh, of like, you'd have a story that just had one element, which was like, "What was that? What was that all about?" That was like, how do you explain that? And I love those kind of things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, real, the real uncanny, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You know, tell tales of the unexpected. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You no, know, that just that little whiff of what the hell was that? Or how? Yeah, that's explained. That explained. But how could that have happened in, you know, and so it's almost that little tiny whiff of that his hand has been guided all the, all the time by this, this little boy that he's found 
by the side of blank moss in the in the in the first book and i was a bit scared of doing that but i just thought well it's the third book why not you know let's go no indeed i'll look out for that because i've read the first two and i read them back to back and then i thought i can't just do them all because i got them all three of them for christmas this <laughs> end of the end of the year last year so obviously i devoured the first two and i thought i've got to save it i've got to wait for so i've i've, I've I'm t- I'm just about to finish the book, the second book in between, and I'm going to go back to it. So I'll uh, I'll have that in mind when I go in. Uh, before we get on to the films, one question. Oh, yeah, film. Asked... Sorry, I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, I, I appreciate. I know I appreciate your, your your candor really about because I think I think the whole writing process is 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 something. I mean, I it's this is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey, y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Then I've had to learn... As, uh, from from my point of view, and I love hearing how other people tackle it and what are the challenges. I think it, you know. I think it, uh, fiction has its own demands, but also you're coming from a point of view which is very different from my point of view, which is very different from someone else's point of view. So, how you solve those problems is 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 as personal as well. I, 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 the thing I've got at my advantage is decades of being a journalist. Yeah, which is you know this story is for the twelve o'clock news. That's not negotiable. You know, mm. you don't, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, no. you, can't, you, you can't go to the news editor and say, oh, do you know what? I'm not really feeling this story at the moment. I think maybe, maybe if I could light some candles and maybe just have a little think. No, <laughs> it don't work like that. <laughs> you know, the story is for the 12 o'clock news. So there's no, so I, I've always taken a very workmanlike approach to it, you know, you know, my dad worked on building sites and he never said to the foreman, I'm not really feeling this, you know, this, this bricklaying or this, this, this glazing today. I'm not really, you know, I'm not really in the zone. No, he shut up and got on with it. And I take the same view, you know, <laughs> shut up and get on with it. I am. I'm with you completely. The, I've, I've, the amount of arguments I've had about what writer's block is and what writer's block isn't. And, I've, and often I say, look, you can't be arsed, just admit it. Yeah, and I tell you what I hate more than anything else is on Twitter is hashtag I'm writing. <laughs> hashtag I'm writing. No, you're not. You're hashtag dicking about on Twitter. <laughs> Indeed you are. Now, before we get on to the films, there is one, a question I've interviewed a lot of documentarians on on, on the podcast. And a, que- a favourite question I like to ask, and I know you've, and I, you know, you talked about it a lot on the Old Brother podcast, but when you're doing a, when you're doing a documentary, there's this. I, I, in my mind, there's this idea of what you perceive you're going to cover, and then what you learn by doing the documentary. So, with something where, uh, with I swear I was there, the one about the the infamous Sex Pistols gig in '76, 
which you've obviously written a book about that then became, I'm sorry, did the TV documentary that then became a book. Thinking about what you perceived about that gig, what's been like the biggest surprise or biggest lesson you learned from doing the documentary in the book? What did you uncover that you could never imagine going into it? Right. I mean, this has now become like common parlance, but when, when we did the documentary and done the book, this you know, we couldn't type this into the internet. We had to do this old school yeah. style track everybody down and all this kind of stuff yeah and um the weird thing was i so i i, I told you before I, i'm the luckiest person going i got my first book deal because i was making this documentary i was dragged into an office at granada television where i worked and they said tell these guys that story about the sex pistols so yeah i said i told them the story because I'd, I'd always wanted to make this program and so i told them and they went kind of whispered to each other and they said do you think you could write a book to go with it and i said yeah and they said, right, you've got a book deal. And it took like 20... There'll be people throwing seconds. laptops out the window here in this, David. I know, it's disgusting, isn't it? Um, <laughs> I often, you know, I wear a stab vest normally when I tell this story because, you know, people hate me. But it's true, I did. No, no, no. And um, so, and then the... I, did, I wrote the book, and I had to write, write, I took me, ni- I only had like nine weeks to write it. Gee whiz. So I was basically making the programme during the day and writing the book at night. I nearly went mad. And I did it. And I delivered it, and the publisher said, "Oh, it's not long enough." So, so, so I, I don't know. No one, I don't know how long is a book. I don't know. No one told me. And they said, uh, "Oh, no, no, it was in the in the contract." All right. Well, I never saw it. <laughs> and so I basically to fill out. So they said, "Right, well, if you can put twenty thousand words on it, you know, we'll see what we can do tomorrow." So I basically put all the stuff that I I sidelined uh, back in. All the, all the people arguing, all the people kind of contradicting each other, all the people saying, oh, he wasn't there. Oh, no, he definitely was there. No, I can guarantee you that he wasn't there. All this argumentative stuff, I put it back in, which journalistically you wouldn't normally do. And um, and that is, if, if it hadn't, if I hadn't done that, you and I wouldn't be having this conversation now because oh, really? that's, what made, that's what made the book. Okay. And there you go. So what I learned was um, there's this gold there and you maybe don't necessarily realise it. And the gold was the contradictions of people disagreeing with what they saw, yeah. what they remember, and swearing blind that they saw this when when some when twenty other people say the opposite. That that's where the gold was in the kind of contradiction. And I've seen so. I'm not you know I'm not claiming to have created another genre, but there's so many books like that now of that kind of oral style of mm. people kind of disagreeing with each other and this that and the other yeah. particularly in, in music books and i swear i was there was one of the very very first and um it works really well because it's it's quite funny as well yeah yeah i guess i guess i guess please kill me that one about punk that that yeah that does it doesn't it that has, yeah it does yeah and there's loads now i mean i've got I'm, I'm, my bookshelves here are full of music books music books are my thing yeah and uh, and, there's, and there's certainly loads of them now but in 2001 this was quite a weird thing to do and um yeah so yeah look out for the gold that's 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 the top tip nice one well look sir we're going to move swiftly along into three films that have impacted everything in your adult life um you very kindly have stuck to British only films, which which is yeah, because I, I've naively thought, <laughs> <laughs> given the name of it. Yeah, yeah, no, the, no, that would it in it one time that would have been true. I used to do five great British horror films as a thing, as a, and this is what this has been born out of that format, and 
And I just found I didn't want to talk about uh, Don't Look Now, Blood and Satan's Claw and Wicker Man another time. You know? Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> it's uh, So I kind of, and I was interviewing people from from around the world, and so the, the British part of it just became the name of the show. But I'm very grateful. So my first choice is The Wicker Man. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> you can piss off. <laughs> but... Um, so just for the people that haven't heard this format before, I'll just run through the rules and obviously remind you what we're going to do. So David has very kindly given me three films um, that we're going to talk to. Um, we're going to do it for five minutes at a time when the alarm goes, which will sound something like this. And hopefully you can hear this at your end. Yeah, subtle. Defcon 1, it is. Um. So when that goes off, that's our ch- that's our time to stop. I mean, it's basically my inability to politely say, "Can we stop?" Because five minutes are up. Um, we can overrun. There's no there's no harm in, in sort of finishing a thought um, or even where or even starting a thought if it if it if it bleeds into that. Um, so, is that okay with you, David? Yeah, grand. Brilliant. Well, look, let's start with the first on your list. It is Hell Is a City from 1960. What were you? Yeah. What made you choose that one? When I, I got chucked out of school when I was 16 and I, because I'm really lucky, got a job as a trainee journalist the week after. <laughs> and it's true, it's ridiculous. And <laughs> one of my first jobs on this magazine was to clear out a cupboard full of old editions going back to the late 40s. And I'd save one copy, put it in an envelope, chuck the rest away. And I was doing this and you're flicking through and I saw one of them had this set of photographs of a film being made in Manchester. And it had pictures of a guy running across the rooftops of what we used to call the refuge building. And all of these kind of secretaries with bouffant hair and, and kind of, mm. you know, greaser boys, uh, messenger boys leaning out the windows, looking at this filming taking place. And I thought it looked so cool. And the guy running, I recognised him because he was in that film that my dad likes, Zulu. Mm. That's right. Yeah. And um, I thought, oh, God, he looks so cool in his white shirt running across the rooftops. That's such a cool image. And then didn't think anything more about it. And then years later, I realised that, that they were filming Hell is a City. And um, and it wasn't until uh, till a long time after I actually got to see the film. And I love it. And, you know, unsurprisingly, what we've just been talking about, it's set in the centre of Manchester. Um, it is... And on in the hills above and around Oldham, yeah. So um, I might style myself as the king of Manoir, yeah. But actually, the supreme ruler of uh, Manoir is uh, Stanley Baker in um, Hell Is a City. Uh, it's great. It's got it's got um, bad guys. It's got tough cops. It's got great locations. Many of which you can see, you know, around Manchester still. Some of them are still there. Um, it's got this kind of um, this Oldham, this weird kind of, you know, war like wartime looking streets of Oldham. Um, it's got the lot, you know. And Stanley Baker it annoys me when people think of Stanley Baker in terms of Zulu. Mm. You know, I mean, this is a guy who makes. Uh, this will be a niche reference for your American listeners. This is a guy who makes Sean Connery look like John Inman. Um, you know what I mean? Mm. Uh, you know, he just like a slab of man. They used to call him Manly Stanley. He was he, he was a, a Renaissance man. You know, he was a producer and he was an actor. He was putting you know put money back into his community in Wales. He was a fascinating man, and um, you know, died in the very early seventies of, of cancer. 
and and one of you know Hell Drivers is another one of his films, which is another of that you know of very much of the same ilk as uh, Hell Is a City, but it's you know it's wham bang, um, it's it's you know, it's a great you know set piece sequence on the on the rooftops of Manchester at the end. There's a and I, I really like films that have got like almost like a self-contained little film inside of it. Mm. And there's this great sequence where um, the bad guy is um, uh, sort of uh, attacking a, 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 a girl who can't speak, can't, you know, and she can't scream. And he's attacking her in, in this furniture store. Mm. And it's a great little self-contained <clears throat> scene, almost like a short film in itself. Um, Donald Pleasance is in it. Um, Billy Whitelaw is in it. Um, Doris Speed, who was in Coronation Street, who played Annie Walker in Coronation Street. There's another niche reference. I mean, it's it's, um, it's also it. it's, it's also surprising to me when I watched it. I only watched it a couple of years ago myself for the first time. It's surprisingly grim. Like it's he's the tort he's the tortured man who who, who realizes he can't have it all. Yeah, and there's two endings actually. If you if you get a DVD of it, there's a there's the alternative ending. Oh, which oh I've is not seen the alternative. I've got the Blu-ray. Yeah, it is the alternative ending, which is more upbeat. Oh, really? And uh, but the ending that they kept is this basically the man alone, yeah, walking through Piccadilly Gardens. Yeah, it's an am- it amazing, very powerful ending. And it's violent. It's very, it's very sexual as well. It's yes, yeah. sexual film for uh, you know. I mean, Hammer obviously no strangers to mixing you know sex and violence. So it's just a cracking watch, and it's great to see Manchester you know, shot in this kind of sexy black and white way. Mm. Great to see the hills above Oldham in, in you know, shot in this kind of like, you know, like it's a different world from the well, that, that whole That whole sequence where, where you know, they're, they're gambling and they keep somebody's keeping watch and that, you you kind of go, hold on a minute. I thought when we were given all the Brexit lies that this there was this sort of beautiful past that we've, that we were trying to get back to. What, we're trying to get back to, we're trying to get back to that. You know, yeah. and and it always gets a snigger. I, I saw it in a, a cinema quite recently, actually, and uh, it always gets a snigger because the gambling uh, dens are referred to as tossing schools. <laughs> so, uh, and the gamblers are referred to as tossers. So, because uh, there's this weird thing that they're betting on. But yeah, it's it's you know, if you haven't seen it, if you haven't seen it, it's shown about every forty five minutes. On talking pictures, talking TV. pictures, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, get stuck in and, and well, that and tossing game out. they're playing is. Have you seen the film Waking Fry, the Australian film? Oh right, okay. With I'll Donald Pleasance, enough, with Donald Pleasance in as well from 1973. That's the centre of the story. They play this game in the back of a pub, and the protagonist is sort of descends into this, his own personal toxic masculine hell. It's, uh, well, there you go. There's Donald Pleasance, uh, you know, king of the tossing. There's a, there's a subgenre right there. The tossing <laughs> Have we just invented it right now? Yeah, we're the kings of it. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, jumping forward two decades to a very different film, no, no less quintessentially British in, it, in what it was doing at the time, is uh, the great rock and roll swindle. So, great rock and roll swindle. Um, it always baffles me where people, there's been a fashion of late. Uh, and when I say, because I'm old, of late means within the last 20 years, um, of uh, The Filth and the Fury, which is the Julian Temple's film about the Sex Pistols, um, is, is, is a great work. And, and then to slightly poo-poo the great rock and roll swindle uh, as, as a not great work. And I think that's bonkers. Comparing the two is like comparing oranges with Volkswagens. 
you know, um, Filth and the Fury is a documentary about the Sex Pistols. Um, and that's it. That's that's what it is. That's yeah. all it is. Great Rock and Roll Swindle is part comedy, part musical, part cartoon, yeah. part 1970s smut film, part music uh, documentary. Is this phantasmagorical beast of uh, of every kind of genre you can think of? And it's, I think it's just magic. It's magic. And I love watching it. I love, I, sh- uh, I watched it with uh, my daughter uh, not so long ago because, you know, I want to say, just w- let's watch this. Mm. It's mad. <laughs> and it's mad. And um, and I think it's great. And so for, for people to kind of do it down, as like, oh, it's not because it's Malcolm McLaren's vision rather than uh, the, the vision of the pistols or whatever um, is, is a terrible shame. And it shows you as well what an amazing filmmaker Julian Temple is, that he could basically take the same story and same materials mm. and tell it in two completely different ways. And I think that shows the measure of the guy. It really does. So, yeah, I, I will have not have anything said. There's no point in comparing it to Filth and the Fury uh, because it's completely is completely different genre and everything. It's got Irene Handel in it. <laughs> you know, it's got Mary Millington in it. Yes, it you know, has, it's yeah. got, Jesus. you know, it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's got cartoons in it. It's got real stuff. It's got fake. Would well, you know, it's I mean, got... thinking about like just being that, cause I was only, God, I was only, I was only five by the end of 76. So punk never happened in my, in my mind. So I heard frigging the rigging because it was swearing in it as my first, Sex Pistols song, if I, you know, the, in my memory of hear, in, the, in hearing of the Sex Pistols, you know, being at your older older cousin's house, <laughs> you know, and this is the one we're swearing in, and you you sort of so that's you know that's in that's part of this part of the story of the Sex Pistols. I mean, I get I get the idea that Johnny Johnny Lydon isn't part of this this story anymore, and we're kind of it's like the tree falling down. We're getting the documentary of, aren't we? Really, rather than the tree stood up proud, but that doesn't make it any less brilliant. But it's not a documentary. It isn't a documentary. No, no, it's sorry, yes, yeah. It's musical, it's, cartoon, smutty, uh, comedy. Sorry, what I meant, sorry, what I meant, I meant like as a social document of, of the time, okay. you know. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, the, it's de- I think it's definitely a social document. And I think it's a laugh. And I have to say, you know, uh, that I um, have riff, ripped it off on many, many occasions. I did a documentary about the Smiths in the early 2000s uh, called uh, These Things Take Time. Mm. And it was during that time when uh, Morrissey wouldn't do interviews. My God, I missed that time when Morrissey <laughs> didn't do interviews. And um, so, and they said, right, how are you going to get around this? So I thought, what would Julian Temple do? <clears throat> I know he'd made cartoons of it. So I made a cartoon Morrissey and a cartoon Smiths to fill in the bits that I didn't have, which I, you know, an idea I took from Rock and Roll Swindle. And I still have in a frame in the house, uh, a letter from Morrissey's solicitors shooting some legal shots across my bowels for doing really? this. Because Morrissey did not like it at all. So, you know, there's so much going on in Great Rock and Roll Swindle that it's an endless mine of ideas. Did you get to you see it? short of an idea, pinch it from Rock and Roll Swindle. Did you see this then in the cinema when it came out, as it were? Yeah, I remember seeing it in um, uh, my favourite cinema of all time, which is the Scala Cinema in London, where I used to live. I used to live in the Scala Cinema. Mm. And I remember seeing it there probably just shortly after it came out, maybe like a repertory run. And um, 
yeah, what an amazing place the Scala was. You know, they had, they had a cat inside the cinema which would jump up on your lap during uh, the uh, seven-hour uh, Dario Argento marathon you would sit through, and everyone's smoking weed and drinking beer. Amazing. I'm very jealous of you. I mean, back when I came to London in 99, the Scala was already a music venue. It was no longer a place for film. Yeah, it's an amazing place, amazing place. I interviewed, I've had, Jane Giles has been on, who's, who's written the, the book about the history of the Scala. She used mm. to program it probably in, in you know, in the, um, in the eighties and, and nineties. Um, no, it's a, uh, it's one of them places that I remember used to sit in the music press advertised when I still lived in, when I lived in Manchester and they'll be like, what's this place? Where, how can they get to see all that stuff? Yeah. Uh, we did have one again. I'm showing my age now, but there was a, a cinema called the Arbor in Hume, um, which basically did the same function. No, hardly anybody remembers it, but I can remember going there and you'd see triple bills of Val Luton films on a Sunday really? afternoon. You know, amazing. Well, so, I mean, you see, going back to what you're saying about how Manchester depicted growing up in Radcliffe and Presswich, you know, because we're north of Victoria Station, we never saw city limits. You know, that, that, that never sold, that never sold north and Victoria Station. So you kind of, you kind of were, you were, you were outside of the, the kind of pop culture side of whatever. Whatever Manchester was, it was only when you you got the train and you discovered, oh my goodness, there's this there's this place that's on my doorstep. I had no idea. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, 1972's Tale from the Crypt. Yeah, um, it's a it's a portmanteau, uh, uh, yes. you know, an anthology. Um, Indeed, it is film. And uh, one thing that's always annoyed me about anthology films is they always feel the need to put a funny one in, a light one a bit of light relief, you know, most famously Dead of Night, uh, which has got the awful, awful golfing sequence in, which is horrible and not funny. And I think the American prince took it out. So there's even, uh, you know, even in um, Ghost Story, there was that kind of funny one with the lad in the forest and things like that. So it's always bugged me that. Tells in the Crypt is unremittingly, in your face, unpleasantness. Bang, 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 bang. Oh, there's a there's a demented Father Christmas trying to strangle um Joan Collins. Uh, oh, there's a there's a guy with um who's gonna have the rest of his eternity with uh, embalming fluid uh, burning into his veins. Oh, it's um, a great story oh, there's though. There's a man who the man who has to die over and over and over again. Ian Hendry, uh, having you know uh, left his wife for his uh, his fancy woman. Oh, the guy has to make a choice between uh, being eaten by a giant dog or running through a corridor full of razor blades. It's just so unremittingly unpleasant. Every single story is kind of in-your-face um, nastiness. And I think that's what it should be. You know, never mind a flipping, you know, amusing one to uh, clean the palate for the, to ready you for the rest of the film. You know, bollocks to that. Bang, 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 in-your-face unpleasantness over and over again. And I can remember my dad worked very hard and he would often fall asleep of an evening. So I got to watch loads of things that I probably shouldn't have done when I was quite young. Uh, I can remember him, <laughs> I remember him waking up during uh, Get Carter when uh, Britt Eklund was uh, giving herself one and uh, being packed off to bed fairly sharpish. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so this was one of, one of these films that I saw very early on, way before I should have done. And it frightened me to death, particularly the Ian Hendry sequence where he's, he's, he's caught in a, a never-ending loop. And that really frightened me, that. Ian Hendry, there's another one. 
is another actor who, you know, absolutely cracking screen presence yeah. of, you know, a man's man, but clearly someone who was incredibly damaged inside, you know, in all the parts that he played. And, and, and this is one of them. And it's a cracking little sequence with him and it's a cracking film and it's bang, bang, bang in your face, you know, nastiness. And that's what it should be. Never mind these light episodes. Screw that. Well, I mean, I'm the the the, the poster artwork of the skull with the one eyeball was very prominent in my local video shop, like in the yeah. early eighties. So, so, so kind of long before I saw the, the 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 film itself, I was already haunted by what you know that you know the book the, judging a book by its cover. I mean, that's half of the fun with horror is like what what world is behind that image. <laughs> When people say, oh, you should never judge a book by its cover. No, you should always judge a book by its cover. That's what it's there for. And yeah, it's funny. It's the same with those photographs of Stanley Baker. Mm. That I, I saw those way before I saw the film. So that that's sticking in your mind probably way before you saw it. Yeah, yeah, no, is, absolutely. Uh, you know, the power of a still image is, is, is incredibly powerful. And um, yeah, it's it's a cracking film. It was a, it was a fashion at the time for these kind of portmanteau uh, uh, anthology films, particularly from Amicus, um, Vault of Horror is the kind of companion. yeah. And from Beyond the Grave is the and um, and the cracking, you know, and the 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 you know, if it comes on one of those ones, one of those Amicus films from the early seventies comes on late at night. I'm not going to bed. I'm start, st- stopping right where I am and I'm going to watch it. Because yeah, because Tales from the Crypt is like Volta Horror, isn't it? It brings together some people and then it's like we get their, sto- we get their stories. Yeah. And, and what a cast. What a cast. You know, Ralph Richardson, Joan Collins, you know, just, just a, a Ian Hendry. What fantastic casts. And that's what, again, people forget about. Same with Rock and Roll Swindle. Amazing cast of people. Sometimes only doing little bibs and bobs. Um, but... You know, proper, proper acting talent being brought to play. And, you know, then it's no coincidence that it's that these are great films because they've got proper actors in and uh, doing proper acting. And it's and it's funny that, isn't it? You know, the better mm. the actors, the better the film. Is there a scene or a sequence that sort of lives up, that, that stands out the most for you in terms of... 100%. Terms- I mean, I don't want to spoil it, but now I'm going to spoil it, obviously. There I is, think we can uh, a 72 Ian- film. <laughs> Ian Hendry... Um, he has left his wife uh, for his uh, fancy woman, as we used to say in the 70s. And um, they um, are involved in a car crash. And he uh, is, gets out of the wreckage and uh, is staggered around. And people are freaking out when they see him and things like that. And he go, finally goes to his, his girlfriend's house and uh, she's blind. And, um, and she wants to know where he's been for the last year. And uh, he can't work. He's baffled as to what's going on. And then he looks down. I think uh, uh, he sees himself in a reflection, and his face is absolutely fucked up. Mm. <laughs> you know, absolutely. And it's just for a moment where he sees himself, and then bang, he's back in the car again. And it's just that flash image of him seeing his face absolutely freaked me out. Absolutely freaked me out. And there's loads of them, though. You know, John Collins being strangled by Father Christmas. Yeah, yeah, that's a you know, There's an image. Uh, the razor blades in the car. The embalming fluid one is, is really powerful because it's a very monkey's paw type thing, isn't it? That idea of yeah. be careful what you wish for kind of thing. Yeah. So, yeah, it's real. It's strong stuff. It's strong soup. 
I'd forgotten. I'd forgotten. That's the one that doesn't that doesn't give you a light, doesn't give you doesn't soft soap you at some point. Just to like yeah, a, yeah, as pure, a break. It's just pure un, un, unadulterated unpleasantness. Indeed, and um, I'm all for it. Indeed. <laughs> well, look, uh, we've come to the end of your uh, three films that have impacted everything in your adult life. Um, I'm sure we could talk for more. I'm pretty certain of that for a fact. Uh, I'll remind, just remind people then, obviously we were talking originally about your Mank Noir trilogy, Black Moss, Mermaid's Pool, and most recently, The Ballad of Hanging Lees, which I've read two out of three, and there's a there's a visceral authenticity to it that I just, I really loved. And being from the area, it kind of is, it's like a dark revisiting of home, which is, a, I guess, I guess a compliment like a given the subject that sounds matter. sounds like a fall song, doesn't it? <laughs> So it just gives me to say thank you very much for giving your time on the Britflix podcast. Cheers, thanks so much. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com.